Dr. Bubeck has uh, studied at the Moody Bible Institute, the University of Colorado, the Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary, and Talbot Seminary, uh, which has awarded him the Doctor of Ministry degree. He uh, feels at home among us because he has a brother who is a missionary pilot with MAF. He uh, uh, is one of four brothers, all of whom uh, love and serve the Lord. He is the uh, married and the father of three daughters who are also uh, following the Lord. He has ministered not only uh, for 40 years in this country, but also on three different trips to Africa, two uh, times in Eastern Europe, and one time uh, in Micronesia to pastors in Guam. <clears throat> he is the author of The Adversary, which has sold more than 200,000 copies uh, and is now in its second printing. He is also the author of Overcoming the Adversary, which is now in its 14th printing. A third book, uh, uh, which he has authored, The Satanic Revival, is also much in demand. All of these books, I understand, will be available uh, to us while he is here at the author's discounted price, uh, which is $6 each for the two, the first two, and uh, seven, I believe, is that correct, for the third one. We are uh, indeed grateful. We are praising God. And we are uh, looking forward with great uh, anticipation, Dr. Bubeck, to your ministry among us. Thank you. I thank you so much, uh, Brother Pittman. I stand before you with many happy emotions. I feel like I'm with family. Um, we felt very close to Wycliffe for many years because all of the churches that I pastored had Wycliffe missionaries that we supported. And every missionary conference, it seemed like it was so special and strong. And many times that was because of the Wycliffe missionaries. I feel like I'm with royalty because I always sense that the missionary family is very, very special to God. And some who may not have received much recognition in this world, in God's sight, are royalty. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So far as the world's standards and the world's evaluations often are concerned. And then I sense that I'm with winners. Isn't it wonderful to be on the winning team? We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And I hope that I'll be able to add 
at least in a small way, to the wonder of that statement. We will be looking at the subject of prayer and how it fits in to the dynamics of our victory over the world and our flesh and Satan and his kingdom. And I pray that God will ignite a, a new fire of vision and enthusiasm in all of our hearts. I will be happy I brought a number of these books, but if we didn't have enough present and you would like to get any one of them, we'll have a sign-up list and I'll be happy to ship them here for your picking them up at a later time if you'll sign your name and perhaps uh, uh, whether you have paid or not, we'll work that out. But first of all, we will uh, see if we have enough uh, for your demand. I brought along a number of these little booklets. These are prayers, doctrinal prayers for revival that are in this book. This book is given the title by the publisher of the Satanic Revival. The first couple of chapters deal somewhat in warning about that. But the rest of the book really deals with motivating and mobilizing Christians to participate in what I yet believe God is going to do in these last days in which we live. A great, maybe very brief, but I think it may well be one of the mightiest revivals that the world has ever seen. But it will not happen without human participation. Revivals are very sovereign. They are all of God and they're all of grace. But they're also very human. They touch human lives. They transform human outlook. They bring multitudes who did not previously know Christ to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. They purify and refine the church. They mobilize believers in a world vision for the reaching of the lost in a deeper way than they've ever known before. And I want to talk to you about that tonight. I began my study of spiritual warfare as a result of my burden for revival. I've had a practice since I was a young pastor of walking and praying in the churches that I've pastored several mornings a week, two or three at least. And usually it would be early in the morning, but I would go over just to walk and pray in the sanctuary, out loud, pouring my heart out to God. God has taught me more in those places about himself 
than I could ever share with you. Almost everything that he's ever done with me and through me are related to those shutaway times with God. It was often a practice when I prayed that way that I would center on a particular subject. And since the topic of revival had been one that from my young years of ministry I'd always felt a burden for it, I found myself on repeated occasions praying for revival. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I was still pastoring in Wheat Ridge, Colorado at the uh, church that has a different name now, but it was the Fruitdale Baptist Church in Wheat Ridge. And I pastored there for 12 years, and it was toward the end of that 12 years. And God had blessed us so wonderfully. I kind of grew up with that congregation. I was just a young pastor when I started there, and we went through two large building programs with them. And I had been sent overseas by them for a ministry in Britain for three months. I had no thought of leaving there. But I was walking and praying for revival, sensing an unusual liberty to do so. When all of a sudden, something happened. It was an experience. I've never sought experiences with God. But there have been times when he's drawn near to me. But he's almost broken my whole person before him. It's an awesome thing when God draws near to you. And on this very brief moment, as I was sensing unusual liberty to pray for revival, and I knew I was praying in the spirit because I was hearing myself pray things with such articulation, I knew it wasn't of me. When all of a sudden, it wasn't a voice, it was a spiritual awareness. I knew it was from God. And that awareness said before a revival like you're asking God to bring can happen, there will have to be a strong encounter with Satan. It so shocked me I quit praying. And I just walked and wondered what that meant. I almost forgot about it because the Lord was in process of calling me from that church to Judson Baptist Church in Oak Park, Illinois, where we pastored for nine years. It was a very traumatic thing for us to uproot from that church where we had pastored for 12 years and almost everyone that was a part of the church had come in under my ministry and everything was being blessed so wonderfully of God and I couldn't imagine that he would call me from there, but he did. But when we were in our new congregation, this practice began again. And once again, I was walking and praying in this new sanctuary 
sensing that same unusual anointing and freedom to pour my heart out to God for revival. And I was really just into the heart of my crying out to God when once again the same thing happened. Before a revival like you're asking God to bring can happen, there will have to be a strong encounter with Satan. This time I said, Lord, I don't know anything about that. And I don't know anyone who does, but if you have someone to teach me, I'm ready to learn. The first thing he did was just take me to this book. And I read my New Testament through, marking every place that had anything to say about the battle between light and darkness. And I began to wonder where I'd been all my life. How could I have preached through book after book of the New Testament and missed what God has to say about the great conflict and battle and struggle that comes so very close to us. Well, that was the launching of my life into spiritual warfare study. My first book is really just the testimony of what God, God taught me and my family about appropriating our victory in Christ. And we began to experience and know freedoms that we had never known before and problems that were looming large in our little family we suddenly found God's solutions for them and it was a life transforming experience and even though I haven't devoted my life to spiritual warfare emphasis it's always had a strong part in my preaching, in my pastorates. And in this last pastorate where I served for 10 years, God in the miracle of his grace led one of our parishioners to want to underwrite the establishment of a center for biblical counseling and we've been in existence now for a little over three years. We have a staff of three. Our major purpose is not to be a treatment center, but a training center for pastors, missionaries, and Christian workers uh, to know how to work with people who are experiencing various levels of demonization in their families in their personal lives, in their ministries. And it's been a marvelous beginning. You experienced a little fruit of that a year ago when uh, Jim Logan was with you. Jim is one of our three counselors and a very, very precious brother. And uh, I'm honored to be here representing him and bringing his greeting to you. He asked me to do that, and I'm so happy to do it.
Now with that introduction, I'd like for you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. What would Jesus Christ say to us if he was here tonight? If he was standing here before us, we'd all be weeping in the wonder of who he is. There certainly would be a attentiveness. I believe we have before us in the passage of Scripture I want us to look at what Jesus Christ would say to the church today. It's been my privilege to travel extensively, not only in our own country, but in other parts of the world. I do not know of any passage of Scripture that so accurately describes what I believe exists in the church. In the Bible-believing evangelical churches of today, more than what existed in the church at Laodicea. I hope that doesn't threaten you because there's a wonderful message here. I know that for years I looked at this passage and I thought, my, what an awful church. What a hopeless situation. And then I began to study it with some depth and pray over it, and meditate over it. And God just brought this whole passage to life for me. And I personally believe it's one of the strongest offers of revival for the last days that you have in all of the Bible. I think most of you as Christians are aware that the seven churches of of Revelation are looked at and studied from different perspectives. One perspective is to realize they were seven literal, visible, historic churches that existed there in Asia Minor when the Spirit of God breathed through John this beautiful, beautiful book of Revelation. And uh, we recognize they were seven churches. And they had the conditions existing in them to which Jesus Christ addresses himself. Another way to study them is to view them as representative of local churches through all of the ages of history. And I know that's true as well. Because right in our culture, here in America, you can see churches. Yes, this church looks like uh, Ephesus Church. This one looks like a Thyatira Church. Here's one that just seems to have everything together, and they're Philadelphia Church. <coughs> and then you will see Laodicean churches, 
Another way to look at the seven churches is to see them representative of the predominant description of the church in various ages of church history. For example, the church at Ephesus was representative of that warm, spiritually alive church that existed in the early days of the book of Acts and, and uh, the moving out of the church into the world. And then the succeeding churches would represent the predominant view of the church as God would see it in all of the ages of history. I believe that's a valid study if you don't press it too far. I remember that's the one that my church history professor at Moody advocated when I was a student there. At any rate, I believe that what Jesus Christ said to the Laodicean church is what he would say to the church existing in our world today. And to me, that has great significance. Here's the shepherd and the head of the church in his glorified, sovereign, omniscient understanding of who we are and what we need, speaking to us. Notice what he says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Let's look at this, first of all, as his competent word to us. First of all, he's competent in his character credentials. Notice how he puts that. These are the words of the Amen. What a statement. Most of us know that amen means so be it. These are the words of the so be it one. The amen. The one who has the final word. The one who is absolute in his analysis. What he says, he means, it's true. He's also, you'll notice in his character, he's the faithful and true witness. The faithfulness of our Lord to us is unchanging 
It's absolute. He can't be anything but faithful. It's part of his nature, his character, his attributes. And he's the true one. When he says and analyzes, it's absolute, it's true. He not only speaks the truth, he is the truth. So his character, credentials, are unblemished. They're absolute. And he's the ruler of God's creation. He holds it all in his hands. In a moment of time, he will judge the wickedness of the nations. He will gather Satan and his whole kingdom, vast and immense, in an instant of time, because he's their creator. They can't even hold together without him. Colossians makes that so plain. By him, everything holds together, whether thrones or kingdoms or powers or rulers. He has them all in his hand. What an awesome person is Jesus Christ in his character and his person. But he's also competent in his omniscience. Notice in verse 15 and 16, he says, I know. You ever use that? I know. Somebody says something to you, I know. And what you're saying is, I think I know what you're saying. But when he says it, he knows. He's omniscient. He knows exactly where we are, friends. No hidden agendas. No closed parts of our thoughts. Before a word is on your lips, he knows it completely. He's absolute in his knowledge. And he says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, why did he want them to be one or the other? Well, I think most of us can recognize why he would want us to be hot. Spiritual fire and fervency is what you're all about here. It burned like a fire in Dr. Cam's heart for so many years, and, and it continues to burn. And there's no way to explain you other than the miracle of God's fire is brought into being and sustains and keeps Wycliffe and Jars moving. It's all of God and all of grace. Why would he want us to be hot? It's obvious. He's talking about spiritual revival, spiritual renewal, 
spiritual fire. Why would he rather that they'd be cold? Well, I think I know. I've discovered as a pastor, when somebody backslides, when his heart really grows cold and indifferent, that uh, when God begins to chasten that person, and he always does, they know what it's about. And uh, when he begins to turn on the heat, and whom he loves he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives, they begin to get the message. But you find somebody lukewarm, apathetic, going through the motions, but there's no real hot fire in his heart for God. There's no clear-cut vision of who he is in living out his victory. And chastening begins to come in that person's life. And he begins to wonder, what's God doing to me? Why would he do this to me? It's very difficult for the Lord to deal with lukewarm apathetic Christians. And Jesus says, I wish you were one or the other. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. His competent word to us. Does it say that uh, he's through with them? Not at all. It's just the beginning of one of the greatest offers in all of the Bible. I want you to see it with me. But let's go on to his contradicting word to us. Notice in verse 17. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Have you ever heard a Christian say that? I never have. In all my years of pastoring, I've never yet met a person who has said with his lips, I'm rich. I'm increased with wealth. I don't need a thing. But you see, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And what he's talking about here is your lifestyle. And in your lifestyle, what's important to you? You are saying to the God who sees the heart, I'm rich. I'm increased with goods. I really don't need anything. And before you say, well, that doesn't apply to me, how are you... Um, Looking at yourself. Are you glad we live in a free nation? And uh, you have a retirement. And you have a nice car and a nice home. Health insurance. Now there's nothing wrong with those things. But if that's really what your life is all about. Then the diagnosis of Christ fits us more than we'd like to admit. 
And he goes on, and he speaks about the truthful diagnosis of us. Notice how he does it. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I don't know about you, but I kind of feel that that applies to me. And it applies to what's happened to the Christian church in the years that I pastored, so far as the world is concerned. We have not really made a very dramatic impact in our country in the last 20 years. While most of us have been pastoring and serving the Lord, our culture has become more pagan. There's a revival of Satanism underway that's alarming. And the arrogance and the sinfulness of man is mounting up before God in such an abominable level. Judgment has to come of one kind or another. Why has that happened? Is it because the gospel that we proclaim is less dramatic and dynamic than the gospel that turned the world upside down wherever Paul went in a culture that was just about as wicked and rotten as a culture could ever become? <laughs> oh, dear friends, we need to examine ourselves in light of what is happening all about us. And dear friends, I'm not saying that to discourage us. Just the opposite. I hope that somehow God will use what Jesus says to us to arouse us to what he offered us. So let's move on. His correcting or his counseling word to us. Notice verse 18. I counsel you. I love that. I'm in a ministry of counseling and have been all my life as a pastor. And uh, counselors have to be very sensitive. Very tender, loving people. Otherwise, you don't get any place. And Jesus Christ counsels us. He's different from Satan. Satan, he intrudes. He usurps. He tries to force us with his rage and his deceptions and his tricks. The Lord Jesus is just the opposite. He doesn't intrude. He's kind. As Isaiah saw him, he's a wonderful counselor. Anyone could sit down with him and just pour it all out, knowing he would understand, knowing that he would have answers. So he counsels you and me. What can we do? 
about the church today and its needs. We can listen to Jesus. Notice what he says. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. What does that entail? I'm sure there's depth of symbolism here that none of us really understand. But I know when he said we're to buy of him gold, that's true riches. It has something to do with what Peter and John had when they sat by the temple, or they came by the temple, and the cripple was there begging some coins, and they said, silver and gold, have we none, but such as we have, we give you, rise up and walk. And he was suddenly whole. That's spiritual dynamite. I don't know what white clothes to cover our nakedness means. I know it has something to do with the nakedness of the church to really do something about the drug scene that is sweeping in upon our nation with ever-increasing calamity. And we seem naked to really stop it. I know it has something to do with the fact that the divorce scandal is sweeping through our culture and even into our Christian churches in dimensions and level that stagger us. We seem so impotent, so naked to do anything about it. I know it has something to do with the fact that while we have been Christians, there have been celebrity Christians in the forefront of Christian circles who've disgraced us with their impurity and their immorality. And it's not just the celebrities. It's in our churches. Large church in Chicago, I learned on my way here had a census, a personal private census of all the people who came to their church. And it's a very large congregation, and they had something like 3,000 responses. And they discovered that one in six of the people who come to that church, the evangelical church, Strong Bible preaching church. All of the people showing a real desire to know the Lord. And yet one in eight of every person in that church admitted that within the last six months they'd been involved in an adulterous relationship. 
We're naked. When are we going to acknowledge it? We're naked. The world is full of darkness. And we're the light. But we're naked. I don't know all that ISAV means, but I know it has something to do with spiritual seeing and spiritual hearing. I hope that those things don't make you uncomfortable to the point that you're discouraged. But I hope that they make you uncomfortable to the point that you say, I want to buy. You see, he's counseling us to buy. How do you buy? Well, Isaiah chapter 55 tells us exactly what Jesus was talking about. How do you and I buy gold, white raiment, eyes have in the hour in which we live? Notice what he says in verse 55, or chapter 55 of Isaiah. Verse 1, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk. And there's that word, come, 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 come. How do you buy? You go on with God and you come and you come and you come and you come until your prayer life becomes the passion of your life. And you're buying. Are you buying? Is your prayer life really buying? And then in verse 2, he also tells us, listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear, come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. How do you buy? You come and you come and you listen and you listen and you listen. You say, God, I want to hear you. Speak to me out of your word. I'm listening. How do you buy? Verse 4 says, See, I have made him a witness to the peoples. See him. See him, the omen, the creator, the counselor, the friend. You got your eyes on Jesus, and you see him, and you come, and you listen. And then you turn. From that which is evil. Notice what he says in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. The evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him. And to our God. For he will freely pardon. And so you come. You listen. You see him. You make things right. 
that need to be made right. And what's the result of that? Notice in verse 19, he will begin to correct us with his disciplines and with the perfection of his outreach to us. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. The Lord Jesus will lovingly begin to help us on our way. When you start to buy and you begin to mean it with all of your heart, then he begins to aid us on our way with some of his loving discipline. And then he consoles us. Look at verse uh, 20 to see his consoling word. Here he says, here I am. What a beautiful counselor who's just told us to buy from him. Here I am. Oh, I believe Jesus Christ is just waiting for people who will look out upon what's happening in our country, who will see things like the present Senate's, Senate's actions and the embarrassment to our whole nation of what's happening. And we'll begin to buy and buy and buy with all of our hearts. Jesus Christ says, here I am. Here I am. He's ready. And he goes even further than that. He begins to knock. And what he's talking about here is not being saved. As we've often used this text, and I don't in any way disparage that usage of it. But that's not its main message. Its main message is revival. Here I am. I'm ready. I'm willing. If anyone. You see, revivals are intensely personal. And they, be, they become individual. If any person hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in. I like the way David Maines defines revival when he says that it's, it's a tremendous consciousness of the nearness of our Lord. And that's really characterized every revival that you read about in history where there comes a tremendous move of the Spirit of God over the hearts of people and Jesus Christ becomes intensely personal and near. And there's a sweetness of fellowship. For he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now notice, he has a coronation word for you if you hear what he says. Notice what it is. To him who overcomes, to him who buys, in other words, 
in this context. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Dear friends, there's more to this than any of us have ever understood. There's a royalty reward here for people who take the words of Christ seriously and begin to buy. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. But notice how he closes it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, that means you can hear or not hear. You can buy or not buy. Are you really buying? Are you really hearing? Are you looking at what's happening in our world and letting it humble you? Let it break you? Let it embarrass you? Because it's happening not where the spiritual life of the church. It's happening in our world. Where we live. We're the only ones that can do anything about it. As we begin to buy and buy and buy. I close with one of my favorite stories. I heard it many years ago. It's about an old couple in a rest home. And they'd been married for over 60 years. And finally, it just came to the place where it was obvious that they couldn't make it anymore. So they went to the rest home. She was in a wheelchair, and he hobbled around on his crutches. And one day they were seated in the room, and she was in her wheelchair on the other side of the room. And he just was looking at her. And he thought back over all those years they'd spent together and the children that they'd reared and how wonderful a wife she'd been. What a gracious, sweet, and precious mother. And he just got kind of carried away in his reminiscing. And so he called across the room to her and he said, I'm proud of you. But she was very hard of hearing. And she said, uh, what did you say, dear? So he said it louder. I'm proud of you. I didn't quite get that, dear. Would you say it again? So this time he just fairly shouted it. I'm proud of you. Oh, she said, well, I'm kind of tired of you too, but let's make the best of it. <laughs> she never heard. She never heard. Are you buying? Oh, your world needs you to buy, to buy, to buy gold, white raiment, ISAF. You don't have to know all that that means. As you pray about it, Jesus Christ will give you insights. 
but it means you come and you come and you come and you listen and you listen and you listen and you see the Lord Jesus as the only answer for the world and you begin to repent for your own sins and for the sin of your culture and Jesus will be standing there and he'll say to you here I am here I am And I believe God will bring us the greatest revival awakening this world has ever seen other than Pentecost. For one last mighty, mighty forward thrust of great mission works like Wycliffe. You know, everything's in place. Did you ever think about that? The technology's in place. The organizations are in place. We need somebody who buys. Are you buying? Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, precious Lord, how wonderful to be laborers together with Christ in the fields that are white unto harvest, to listen to our Savior as he spoke so directly to our needs as he addressed the Laodicean church, as he offered such great, great riches to them. Oh, we pray that we will hear the words of our Savior, and respond. Remove our spiritual deafness and build a gracious burden for prayer in our hearts in Jesus' name. Just before I leave the podium, I'd like to just say a word. In that book, The Satanic Revival, these seven doctrinal prayers for revival, I believe, have a very important message to say to the body of Christ about praying doctrinally. And I hope that if you can't buy any of the books, you'll try to get one of these. And you're welcome to copy them. They're available for a $2 donation if you buy one. If you buy more than 25 then they're a dollar and a half. But um, if some of you can't be back for any of the rest of the services and you'd like to get one of the books or one of these, why don't you come up and just talk to me tonight? And I have a few here with me. We'll try and have everything I brought hopefully tomorrow. But um, I hope that if you can't come back, that you might pick some of these up even before you leave tonight.